Late Night Conversations with Patricia Anduli. Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Social Conversations. Let's welcome uh, A-Team guest Riyad Ibrahim, who's a social investment specialist at uh, Kululu Social Investments. Thank you very much for joining us, Riyad. Good evening, Patricia, to you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. Very intriguing uh, piece that you wrote here saying that metric results are just a number. You know, for parents who have children who've uh, received uh, top results, you know, bachelor passes and distinctions, this is a statement that would shock them, even for some students themselves, because some people think those metric results are the end all and be all, and they are the beginning of a new phase in life. Sure. So, um, I mean, it's important for me to note at the start that I'm not saying we shouldn't look at the trick results, um, but I am trying to introduce a new perspective. We're operating in an education system where um, there's not a lot of objective touch points between the education system and the broader public. Um, And so we tend to get very fascinated around some of these numbers. And these numbers are not necessarily telling a broader story of, you know, what's happening and what is coming out of the schools. Um, and so I'd like, you know, my my goal with the piece was to say, let's, let's try and introduce a different perspective, not only worry about the numbers, you know, which can be used to really criticize the government and what the education system is doing and that, but let's look at a different perspective in terms of what we need to be looking at in the future, the future of the workplace and so on. Well, very true. I think uh, we always have to look at every side of the coin in order for us to see progression, especially when it comes to education in South Africa. But uh, we can't go without saying that a lot of people are actually not very impressed with the metric results, um, purely because of the pass rate that is set at 30 percent on any subject. And and people are just out wagging. So are these things you're saying that we should maybe not look at so much, not dwell into them so much, or should we be having the debates around these uh, uh, pass rates? Well, I think some of the debate is important, right? I think that there's there's good analysis that comes out uh, after that that looks at one of the indicators that they look at is the metric results, but there's a number of other indicators that, you know, the uh, analysts are looking at, such as, the throughput rates, which have improved quite a bit, year on year, it's now over 50%, you know, which measures the number of kids entering into grade two that now matriculate. Um, so there's other positive numbers in that, and um, there are analysts that are looking at that. But when it comes to the kind of noise around it, we tend to be very focused on just the actual number. Um, And it is important discussions, but I think that there's a lot of other important discussions that need to be had, especially in context of this COVID world that we're starting to exit Mm. from. Well, you sound very hopeful that we're starting to exit it, but that's not the conversation <laughs> that we're having right now. Um, uh, but just as a caveat, why do you feel that we are starting to exit this COVID world? Because some of us are still, you know, feeling as if we're still on lockdown level five because we're really not sure what's happening with this pandemic. Sure. Well, I mean, the you know, the big thing behind it is that 
across the world it's no longer it's it's no longer being treated as a pandemic it's now moving to endemic status you know the variants are uh less severe and part of that is because global globally we're developing you know high levels of uh immunity against it um and so we're we're starting to deal with it as a uh as a normal communicable virus that's uh part of part of the country and we've got to uh find ways of living with it um without the you know harsh disruptions um that we had before and also you know hospitalizations and death rates have dropped quite significantly um and if that trend continues you know there there isn't logic uh left to all of the restrictions and so on so you know fingers crossed um that we are in, in the kind of sunset phase of the of the pandemic and it's now endemic um and we should be kind of getting on with resuming school full schooling resuming most other aspects of life well, the one thing that I think the class of uh, 2021 and uh, the class of 2020 experienced were the drastic changes that uh, COVID-19 pandemic had on their schooling. I mean, timetables were changed, schools were closed at some time. At some point, it was, you know, almost like it was going to be an indefinite close of schools and they had to go online. They had to find other ways of catching up with the syllabus. So with this in mind, what is it that young people who went through this pandemic in 2020 and 2021, what is it that they have learned and grasped that they can take out into the world? Sure. So on that, I think, the, you know, the biggest thing is agility. We're moving faster and faster into a world that requires a lot of agility and adaptability. Um, and this is a cohort of learners, and not only these two years, over the next, um, you know, kind of over the next decade, we've got cohorts of learners that are leaving school that have had to have seen firsthand how to adjust massive parts of their lives. Remember, for a learner going to school, most of their life is around the school environment, right? It's top of their mind, it's top of their parents' minds, and so on most of the time in the day they're spending at school. So that entire life changed in an instant. And they had to, you know, part of their key, part of their developmental ages, they had to learn to adjust instantly to something new and to something new that, that constantly moved, right? Because... First, it was a lockdown, complete lockdown, and there was no school. And then after that, we switched to some form of rotational learning, and that rotational learning was, um, you know, anywhere but perfect. Um, and and there's been constant disruptions, especially during 2020, periods of time where schools were closed and so on. And so learners were in a situation where the environment around them was constantly, constantly changing. And they don't have experience of, you know, like a 40-year-old person now would have had 38 years of experience of kind of more stability in the environment um, as a general norm and two years of disruption. You know, for a, for a 
12-year-old or, not 12-year-old, but like a 16-year-old learner, you know, it's only been 14 years of relative stability and then two years of radical change. And so they've got it, they've got a built-in agility more than any generation before them. And that's important from a workplace, you know, what it means for the workplace of the future. You've got potential entrants into the job market that have a built-in agility. And we don't know how to measure that. But maybe that's something that we should be looking at is how that agility is going to impact the workforce and also how that agility is going to impact on the people. Are they going to be more adept at entrepreneurship? Are they going to be more adept at changing careers in an instant, at using different working models? You know, there's there's a lot around the adaptability, just that one skill. Um, and then there's a number of other things that the learners have been exposed to. I don't know if you before, want me to before go you go to it. that. Before you go to that, uh, um, Riyadh, I think let's let's sit a bit here with the agility. Um, and and agility is something that is not taught in the school curriculum. We can't uh, overlook what these students have uh, acquired as a skill, as you have put it. And we should be shouting it at the top of our voices for all grade 12s that this is a skill. And this is something that they should be able to go out in the world and proudly say. But it's not really something that everyone is talking about. It's not something that we are hailing in our students, the fact that they are now agile. They are now able to adapt to quick changes. They are now able to... To, to, to change the way things are done overnight and still manage to succeed. So how can we shout this agility um, at aspect that they have acquired in this year, academic year that they come from? How can we do that? So I think what's important, uh, what's important around that is to take, uh, take a look at the kind of the, the bigger corporates and what they're doing around the acceptance of agility, how they are moving the, you know, what needles are they moving, what requirements are they moving around uh, around the entrance to the workforce, and then also from the perspective of the higher education institutions. I think, I think it's important that the higher education institutions also recognize that there is something different about this cohort that's coming in. Mm. Um, and, and I don't mean only your universities. I mean, you know, all of the other skills development bits of work, the CETA trainings and that. Um, how do we capitalize on that? Um, how do we, how do these organizations that are putting people into the workplace, how do they capitalize on that? How do they use that? as an asset to adjust their own um, uh, teaching approaches, their own skills development approaches. Um, how do they take the asset that's coming out of the schools? How do they leverage off that um, in a much greater way and promote that, turn that into something bigger? How does the entrepreneurship development programs take this agility and, and work off that and turn it into something big, you know? 
A-team is joining on this conversation. Very interesting one. Uh, we are not just looking at the metric results as just numbers, but we are looking at much more that uh, goes into um, what the class of 2021 and 2020 have uh, received in terms of skills that they wouldn't have learned on their textbooks. So join in on the conversation. You can send a WhatsApp to 614 Our guest is Ibrahim, um, Riyad Ibrahim. Late Night Conversations with Patricia Anduli, Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Social Conversations. This might sound controversial. Does the metric certificate still worth the paper it's written on? I mean, this might be controversial, but does it worth the paper it's written on? or there's too much hype around the metric certificate? Okay, good question. Is it still worth anything? Definitely. Um, I think what the metric certificate uh, does indicate is it indicates um, a, a learner has gotten through a lot of key developmental goals. Remember that as part of schooling uh, from start to end, there's a number of developmental uh, goals that are set uh, as part of the curriculum. So we shouldn't only look at the, um, the, you know, the marks and the subjects that the learners have done, but also their socializing, their learning, them learning to socialize, uh, integrate better into society, work amongst peers, and so on. So the metric certificate indicates that the learner has gone through all of those processes. Um, so it's a lot more than just the percentages that we see on it. So absolutely, it's an extremely valuable thing, um, but it's not an indicator of, it's not necessarily an indicator of what a person's true potential is. So it's worth something, but it's not the be all and end all. Most definitely, most definitely worth something. And um, and I, I remember yesterday uh, when we were talking uh, around metric results, no, in fact, the day before, an A-teamer sent us a message saying they didn't succeed the first year they did grade 12, the second year um, they, they succeeded, but partially with a diploma. And only after three years on the third year, they then did well uh, enough to go to a university. So it, it's not definitely the end all and be all. And the skills that our young people have acquired are what we should be looking out at because those skills are skills that can take them into the working world, take them into higher education institutions so that they are able to succeed. Tell us more about uh, some of uh, the, the, the attributes or even uh, the skills that young people have learned throughout uh, this uh, academic year, either than just being agile. So besides the agility, and, and thanks for asking this, this, this is what really gets me excited. Um, this is a cohort of kids that, that have been exposed directly to massive issues in public health. Um, you've got matriculants coming out that have been reading up about vaccines and vaccine science and the various sides of the arguments. You've got kids who are coming out that have seen from a sociological perspective, have seen firsthand how society can polarize. Obviously, the matriculants are not going to necessarily put it in, in those words, but they've got direct sociological experience of 
a major polarizing uh, factor uh, in society and seeing how society adapts to that. Um, and then just from a public health perspective, um, think of the potential public health revolution that could come out of this, where you've got an entire cohort of, of learners that have got way more public health information and knowledge than any generation before has been exposed to. Um, and it's not because of school or anything. It's because of all of the media around it and the family meetings that we've had, you know, the Sarah Ramaphosa um, speaking to us um, occasionally every month or whatever. Um, and and you've, you've got kids who are understanding a lot more about the science, understanding a lot more about how viruses are transmitted, uh, seeing issues like vaccine uh, inequality, um, seeing, you know, rich countries kind of hoarding vaccines and stuff like that. They're seeing all of this firsthand, and it's now part of their, part of their lived experiences. So just the sociologists, the public health experts, the economists that could potentially come from this, it's all going to be, uh, you know, chalk and cheese when compared to uh, an economist or a sociologist who hasn't lived through such difficulty. Mm, very true. Very, very true. These skills are skills that can't be bought. And I, and I hope that our education system is going to be able to um, a- adopt such skills for life skills, for our young people to be able to carry on with these learnings um, that we receive from the past two years. Let me go to a voice note from an A-teamer. Good evening. Um, my question is, would you have a doctor operate on you who passed this metric with 30%, for example? Or rather, let me give a more realistic example. Would you hire someone who knows only 30% of the job? Because the postmark is 30%, so they only know 30%, 3 out of 10. Would you hire that person? Kincaid Johannesburg. King K's question, a very intriguing one. I'm going to give it to you, Riyadh, and afterwards I'll give you my thoughts. Sure. So, the, um, you know, I, I've heard this a lot. Would you trust a doctor who's only gotten 30% and so on? And the reality is that there's a lot of complexity behind uh, the entire education system or the entire education process, especially at our public schools, right? So learners are going through a lot to 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 kind of get through, and then there's issues around um, language and, and all of those other things. Um, but the important thing is that no doctor is going to be operating on you with a 30% pass. Anyone who gets into medi- medical school um, are going to, you know, have... Uh, quite uh, has passed with much higher results in it. But I do understand the analogy. The problem is that we are looking still, uh, that, that, uh, by looking at that analogy only, we're looking just at the marks that the learner was able to score on in their metric results. You know, some people don't test well necessarily. Um, and, you know, there's, there's other systemic issues in it. Um, that doesn't mean that a metric 
doesn't count for anything. And the important issue around is around that 30% thing. I think we need to clear up one important misconception is that it's a person who's got an average across all of their marks of 30% doesn't pass the trick. Um, it's the certain subjects that, it, you know, if your other subjects are kind of 50% or uh, above a pass mark and you've got one or two fail marks, then you still get the certificate. So the important thing is that people are coming out with the certificate that certifies that they've gotten through the school process. The exact marks tells you what they did in any subject. And so focusing on just that one issue of the 30%, um, it's not telling the full story, as we've been discussing, about the, the whole metric and the whole completing school process. And and my comment to what the A-team was asking, I mean, it's, it's an analogy and I understand the analogy. However, we must remember that our current curriculum as it stands does not cater for all students' um, academic uh, abilities. So uh, a, a student who might have passed with the 30% in mathematics might have received an A in English because, well, maybe they are linguistically gifted, but when it comes to maths, they are not that gifted. So does that mean we discount them because of that? Does that mean we don't hire them? Does that mean they don't get into um, education institutions that are going to help them study what they would like to study? So I think we need to take this into perspective. I mean, when, when you go to your doctor's room in any case, all you want to see is the fact that that certificate from the university that gave them uh, that, that qualification is there, not their metric results. You get into a plane, you're not asking the pilot, did you pass with the 30% pass rate? So we need to start changing our mindset and remember that not all children are given to academics. Other children want to go out there and then use their hands. They learn differently, hence the marks. But I'm not saying I condone the 30% pass rate. I'm not saying it's a good thing. Everyone wants their children to do exceptionally well, but we need to understand the current climate. I don't know if you agree with me, Riyadh. Exactly agree with that. And, and I do think that in terms of matric certificate, you know, we, we've got to look at it more as a certification of having gone through the system and you know that like that's that's what we uh that's what we're looking for and, and those marks are only one part of it mm. Mm. Let's go back to these rich skills that money can buy that uh, the class of 2020 and 2021 have acquired. So besides the you know we spoke about about the agility and the different um, the different perspectives. Um, I think the, the other thing is the different levels of socializing, the ability to adapt technology to their needs. And, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not ignoring uh, the issues around the technology inequity and that that we're seeing. Um, but in general, you do have a group of learners who have had to become a lot more technologically uh, adapt, and that speaks to that speaks to a potentially different world because this is a cohort of learners that know what the, they want the technologies to do. They see the technology as being servant to them, and the technology as being something that's going to, you know, it it allowed them to change the way they socialize. It allowed them to change the way they 
got information. And, that, and so how are they going to adapt our technological future? How, you know, what's the, this cohort of learners, what, what are the innovations and inventions that we're going to see coming out of them? Um, because they've got firsthand of what the technology does and what the technology doesn't do, and there's frustrations in what the technologies are not able to do. And so what are they going to develop out of that? Because they've got a much more intimate relationship with technology much earlier on in life. Let's go to the lines. I've got an A-teamer, MD. Um, MD, good evening. Hey, good evening, man. Hey, man, it's becoming tough. Very, very tough. What's becoming tough, MD? It's getting difficult to... MDI is still when there. you talk, when you talk, you think twice whether and not say it, or you should talk and say it. What do you want to say? We're listening. I, I think we all agree that we have been floating or we have been swimming in a pool of corruption in South Africa for many reasons. We may not be able to pinpoint as to as who to blame, but I think we all agree that we have been swimming through a pool of corruption. And now, somehow, it has to be cleared. It's, it's, it's not a question of empty trying to create. Something that is wrong doesn't last. It has to get to an end. Now, what I notice is that as, the, as this house of corruption is breaking down, I like it or not, but something that is wrong comes to an end. As this house of corruption is breaking down, the the walls are obviously there. They have cracked the suspect inside, but the roof is still kept in position by some of the pillars of corruption. I don't know in South Africa, but in, in other countries, of corruption are the judiciary. Yeah. And even when corruption and and when corruption is breaking down to tend to keep the roof. All right, we hear you we have coming down, but we are now having a problem of these two. very, very difficult to talk because these two. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much for calling in, MD. Let's go to a voice note. Madam Patricia, how are you? I'm Nathan Ike from Bombera. Madam Patricia, please, let's not confuse people. Education system is not right. The pass mark is supposed to be 50%. When I was studying my primary level, all level, if you don't get 50% in the subject, you have failed totally. Please, let's change our system. That consolation which we have that, no, because of this, I should have done this. No, you have failed. Repeat it to get the knowledge which can help you to help other people in the future. Have a nice evening, Madam Patricia. Bye. 
Thank you very much, A-teamers. Keep the messages coming in. So, um, uh, Riyad, I'm coming back to you. You're saying that uh, because of all these skills that uh, the young people have learned in the past two years as they uh, complete their grade 12, there's certain things that we need to be doing. Social investors and, uh, um, you know, livelihood investors should be taking up certain um, roles and doing certain things. Please take us through that. So the, the 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 thing to do there is, uh, or for social investors, the key thing, key considerations um, would be around the, the kind of livelihoods programs in that that we look at moving into the future, um, and we need to become more futuristic, right? So you're finding that in the space, there's a lot of programs that are supporting uh, old systems that have traditionally, you know, produced a number of jobs and, and turned people into um, whatever skills uh, it turned out certain amounts of skills in that. But I think the, the discussion in among social investors needs to be more around the future of the job market and to start to, well, not start to, they were already, you know, big corporates are already in the process of planning what does the future of the job market look like? But for social investors to be as close to those discussions as possible, to know what's the strategically, what's the best places that we need to be looking at, and not necessarily relying on historical data. And this is where the big risk factor comes in. Because a lot of your social investment programs, you know, it looks at these randomized controlled trials and it looks at uh, big impact studies that say, you know, over the last, let's say, decade, this program has placed so many hundred or thousand um, youth into jobs. But those programs may not be as relevant any longer. They may be, and not maybe, we, we already see, there's a lot of programs that are able to place people into more secure uh, jobs that don't have the five-year, ten-year histories that social investors would traditionally be looking for. So there I'm almost advocating for a much higher risk approach where social investors look into newer programs, look into programs that um, might not have the historical performance but are, going, are meeting the needs of the current cohort, are placing people into technology jobs, are placing people into the gig economy more quickly, more efficiently. Um, so it's about the future of the workplace. And I think a very big discussion needs to be had around the future of the workplace. And the Department of Education also needs to be, uh, needs to be a very critical part of that because, you know, when it comes to streamlining our curriculum and when it comes to changing aspects of the curriculum that's desperately needed, um, it's those futuristic discussions that are going to help us position our streamlined curriculum. You know, and, and the department is already uh, going on their process. They are introducing um, new skills, such as your coding programs and, and that into schools. Um, but, you know, we need to accelerate these processes.
Most definitely. And uh, can you please give us your parting uh, comments, uh, Riyadh, around us uh, looking over and beyond the metric uh, result numbers as just uh, stats that we have, but rather looking at uh, the more skills that young people have acquired? So I think my passing message is um, spend time spend time with kids that have, uh, that have come out of, of metric or in high school at the moment have discussions with them about their views on on COVID, their views on how people have behaved, their views on uh, you know the broader global political systems and that and, and get to understand the depth of knowledge that these kids have uh, have developed over this period of time and look at ways of enhancing that. Look at ways of, you know, what are their interests at the moment, and find the ways of getting them more involved in what they're interested in at the moment because they've been exposed to so much and learn from them as well. Don't only instruct them. Um, there's a wealth of knowledge um, that, that this cohort has gotten. You know, my, my advice is, you know, spend time talking to these kids and don't talk about what were your metric results? Ask them what was your experience over the last two years. Thank you so very much uh, for joining us, Riyadh, and thank you for penciling down this particular article. Very eye-opening. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great, uh, great chat.